Alrighty, welcome to a larger catechism class. Uh, the last one for this semester, gonna be uh, hopefully finishing question seven, which is looking at the attributes of God. I think we have eight to get through, so I don't know if we'll make it. If we don't get quite to the end, I'll probably just uh, record the last bit of it at home and Pam will email it out. Um, and you can listen to that if you wish and think you'll find it worthwhile. But we'll, we'll see how far we can get through. Uh, let's ask the Lord's help as we come to this study. Heavenly Father, um, you are in so many ways incomprehensible, and yet you have revealed yourself to us. You've disclosed some of who you are to us in your word, but especially in these last days through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that through your word given to us that we would see more of you, understand more of your beauty, be more and more in adoration of you to give you praise and thanks all our days and to seek to become like you. So we ask the help of your Holy Spirit in this endeavor, and we pray for Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen. Amen. We're, this section is basically what we uh, called at the beginning the communicable attributes of God. So that is, these are the elements of God's character, attributes of his nature that we particularly experience from him. Um, we don't have a particular experience, say, of God's incomprehensibility or his self-existence, but things like his love, his grace, his justice and mercy are things that we ourselves particularly experience and also are things that we ourselves are to reflect into the world. Uh, so we're going to start off considering God most wise. What Part of what God is, is that he is most wise. Romans 16, 27 says, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So we're looking at God's wisdom. And wisdom in the scriptures is not only some sort of philosophical speculation, but wisdom is a particular type of skill. If you remember back to the tabernacle, the builders, uh, like Bezalel, were said to be wise. That is, they had a wisdom in the skill of creating and executing this plan. And so you can think of wisdom as having these three parts of picking the right ends, picking the best means to accomplish those ends, and then the best, most skillful execution of those ends, right? So you think of Bezalel, they, they, they had the perfect plan of the tabernacle given to them. They, they would have had to pick the best tools, the best procedures for building that tabernacle, but then also the most skilled execution, the finesse, or if you were to say, think, think of, a, of a football team planning in the week for the next game, they, they at one level have the overall strategy to win. They, they have that big plan, but then there's also the tactics within it. What plays are we going to run in order to accomplish that plan? And then in each and every play, the players have to do skillful runs in order to execute every step. And in that, these are all different elements of wisdom that we can consider. So when we're thinking of God's wisdom, what we're thinking of is God's ability to, in everything, pick the best, most perfect end, which is namely his own glory, but then the best means to accomplish that end, and then the most skilled execution of those means. 
And God has seen fit in our world to display and achieve his being glorified through his works of creation, redemption, and restoration. That is, God's wisdom is most seen in his creation of the world, his creation of all things. But then also um, in the fall, coming to that redemption in Christ, that, that linchpin of history, but then also moving to when all things will be remade and restored, when creation will be set free. And the skillful execution of this history is what we call providence. God's intricate, particular um, running of the play of history, if you will. And this all shows God's wisdom. God's wisdom is displayed in creation, redemption, and restoration. And especially the wisdom of God is seen in our world in the church which is God's, um, like, that, the church is God's secret sauce of the world, if you will. Um, the, I had a young adults group, we were looking at Ephesians 3 last night, and it talks about the church as the wisdom of God. Paul says, To me this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to enlighten everyone about God's secret plan, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should now be disclosed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the, the, the cross wasn't plan, plan B. God's plan was always this intricate tale of creation, redemption, and restoration. And the church particularly reveals the wisdom of God. This idea, how could God be um, in relationship, come to be restored to sinners and those who had fallen away? It's through Christ, but now the church as this new redeemed community is displaying to the heavenly authorities the wisdom of God. That is, the, 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 the good angels, they delight when they look at, wow, look, Lord, how you have saved this people. What an amazing plan. Um, the, the bad angels, the demonic hosts, they look at what God has done in the church and they're flabbergasted. They would have never th thought that God himself would have taken on flesh to become a, a man, to come in Jesus, to rescue uh, people that are unworthy like us. What, what a wise, um, incredible plan that nobody saw coming. So the church reveals, and it, it's continually proclaiming the wisdom of God to the world. And so by way of application, we want to be people then who uh, re reflect on and think about and just delight in the wisdom of God in all these spheres, in the sphere of creation, um, in how God's made all things. And delighting in the wisdom of God in creation is delighting in science and, and even math, the, the logical structure of the universe, um, the depths of space, the depths of the ocean. These are all showcase the wisdom of God and to explore them is to delight in God. Um, Thomas Ridgely said that none can be said to meditate aright on the works of God, such as creation, providence, or redemption, who do not behold and admire his manifold wisdom displayed in them. God's wisdom should be a cause for us to worship. And though in our very small time scale that we live in, right, we see very little of the big picture, there's times where God's providence seems inexplicable to us, we don't know why he's allowing the suffering and the pain that he's allowing. 
But when we see the wisdom of God looking back thousands of years to how he brought about a redemption in Christ and is remaking all things, we can trust that God knows exactly what he's doing, even in the midst of our pain and suffering. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So whether it's studying in science or studying God's works in theology and biblical studies, um, God's works are great and wise, and we delight in them as we study them. God himself is most wise. Secondly, God is most holy. Our catechism reads, summarizing scripture. Isaiah 6.3 talks about the the um, cherubim worshiping the Lord. And it says, they cried unto one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we're talking about God's holiness, the core idea of holiness is that of uh, purity and separation. Uh, Purity and separation. But I think a helpful way to think of holiness that isn't often talked about is to think of it as the idea of wholeness. A wholeness, that is, having no speck of corruption or defilement to detract from perfection. Uh, St. Augustine uh, kind of discovered this theological truth that has continued down in that sin and evil do not actually have an existence in and of themselves, but are merely a deprivation of the good. They're, they're merely a privation of the way things ought to be. So, for instance, if, you, if, a, if a circle was not complete but missing a chunk of it, the missing chunk is not a thing. It, it's a lack of a thing. And in that same way, all unholiness is a lack of that wholeness, that wholeness that is perfect being, um, coming perfectly to the ideal of what a created thing should be. Uh, Sin is like a virus that has gone and has corrupted and corroded the human nature. Um, Originally, man was holy in that he met the ideal of what God intended for humanity, but now he's become corrupted. Um, So we're saying God is perfectly free from corruption. He has no admixture, no deficiency. And because God is perfectly holy and everything else is not perfectly holy, there's just a fundamental distinction between perfection and the imperfect. God is holy other than us. And holiness also is an aspect, um, or holiness is, is a beauty and a splendid thing. Things that are whole and perfect in this way um, have, have a particular beauty to us. Um, th- think of how bothersome it is if you have like a chip on a bowl. Just that little imperfection, that flaw is, is so frustrating. Uh, but God has no chips, no flaws. There, there's no deficiency where you can point to be like, ah, I think God could improve a little bit in that area. None whatsoever. And, and we just, we, we love that feeling of perfection, right? In basketball, when you make a perfect swish, or you have a perfectly cooked steak, or when you even do a perfect check mark when you're marking some homework, uh, there's just something that's so whole and accords with our nature when we see perfection. And this is God. Everything he does is perfectly whole. It is wholly other because it is perfect. And by way of application for God's holiness... Because God is holy and so perfect, 
that, that means that we ought to have a particular reverence and admiration for him, recognizing that he is fundamentally separate from us. Think of how great care is taken uh, when old famous paintings are being restored. Uh, it, they take it back into the museum to clean it or whatever. And it's, it's not just that the painting's fragile, but there's such a respect for the perfection and the uh, work of the original artist that, that the greatest minute labors are taken to make sure that nothing mars or defiles. Um, even the best paper wouldn't attempt to think they could improve upon uh, the, the Mona Lisa or Marnay by, by adding a few more little paint swishes, right? And in that same way, when we recognize God's holiness and we come before him in worship, we come to approach him like that, that, that curator does to the painting, we come with a reverence and awe and a recognition that we want to approach God in the way he's told us to approach him and not to, to presume that we know what will be pleasing to him, that we would be able to invent the certain types of ceremonies that, that would please God. That, that's what the pagans do all the time. And they come up with things like, well, if our children are our most precious possessions, we should have child sacrifice. Surely God would love our most precious possession, our own children, to sacrifice like, like the Incas and Aztecs did. But God reveals to us how we are to approach him. And so we come with a careful respect for how God is to be worshipped in the way he's revealed to us. We, 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 we worship carefully in reverence and awe, knowing that God's a consuming fire, as Hebrews 12 says. But secondly, we're also called then to reflect God's holiness. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 15, that as he who has called you is holy, so be ye also holy in all your conduct. For it's written, be holy, for I am holy. So when we are pursuing holiness, we are also pursuing wholeness. That is, we're pursuing what it means to be an ideal human, to regain that ideal image of God in us for what he wanted. And so when we're obeying God, keeping his commands, what we're actually doing is trying to step into what that perfect human flourishing life might look like. In, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about that you can think of God's laws as the instructions for running the human machine. Uh, when you don't follow the instructions of the machine, you put the, the, the wrong inputs in and it breaks down. Uh, God's not, laws are not a hindrance, but everything God has told us for how to live is an instruction for how to be the best humans we can be, to live in accordance with the true intended nature of our humanity, and so to find the greatest flourishing possible. And really, that's nothing less than seeking to become more and more like God. The more Christ-like we are, the more whole we are. The, the more we can um, be freed from just those stains of sin, looking forward to that day when we'll be totally whole again. No more corruption of sin in our nature. God is most holy. Thirdly, God is most just. Deuteronomy 32.4 says that he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and righteous is he. Just and righteous is he. In the Bible, uh, the concepts of justice and righteousness are basically twin concepts. 
You can think of doing what is just as doing what is right. Doing justice is righting what's wrong. It's doing what is righteous. They're very similar concepts. And so when we're saying that God is just, we're saying that he always does what is right. God always does the right action in every situation. He never uh, picks the wrong action. So God is right in all his actions, but he's also perfectly just in all his perceptions. God's judgments, that is, the way he thinks about things, to, to use a human way of understanding, is perfectly correct. Because you see, you and I, we're wrong in our judgments a lot of the time, right? So like you might maybe have seen a food and you thought, oh, that looks disgusting. And then you try it and it's actually pretty good. And then you realize, oh, I guess my judgment was wrong. Or you see this with your kids all the time. They say, ah, oh, that'll be no fun. That'll be boring. I don't want to go. And then they go and they have so much fun. And you're like, see, you just didn't understand. Your, your perception and judgment of this situation was incorrect. All God's perceptions and judgment are perfectly correct. And so we can have confidence when at the last judgment that God is not going to get anything wrong in his, his judgment of how a person has lived and what they deserve and what will be the most appropriate and perfect punishment. Because, because God perceives perfectly and therefore punishes justly. And when there's injustice and judgment, we hate it. It kills us. When, when you hear of an innocent person who's gone to prison for years and you, DNA evidence comes out and you find they were imprisoned unjustly, ah, oh, that gets us. Or when someone that seems to have so clearly committed a, a heinous crime gets off on a technicality because, say, the evidence was inadmissible. There, there's just some technicality. We're like, ah, oh, this is just not right. It's not the way it should be. But we'll never have that feeling in eternity. Looking at the eternal destinies God is giving out, we will agree with him when we perceive perfectly, oh, that's exactly right. That's right, God, you knew better than I did when I was on earth. This is exactly the way things should be. And although right now we see lots of it wrong in our world, lots of unrighteousness, lots of injustice, we, we get to look forward to that day when all wrongs will be made right. God has promised that all injustices will be rectified and we'll live in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where justice dwells, because the just one, the Lord, uh, will be all in all. And an application of this is I think it helps us bear with the wickedness, the unrighteousness, the injustice we see in the world now. Because we know that God's not going to forever let these wrongs go unrighted. But that God is delaying right now in his perfect patience, um, wishing that all would come to, to repentance. So although there's times where we would love God to just return and bring judgment and bring justice and peace to the broken world, we recognize that God's patience waits because God wants to see people repent and come to know him as their father. And so we too can have patience in this world of brokenness, um, knowing that all the wrongs will one day be righted. God is most just. But fourthly, God is most merciful. Most merciful. The, these last 
handful of communicable attributes are all taken from Exodus 34. You remember where God brings Moses up the mountain and he determines to show Moses his glory. And so, and he hides Moses in that cleft of the rock and God says, I will let all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord. And God's name, what he wants to be primarily identified as, he says in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. This is what God wants us preeminently to understand about himself, that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. So first, mercy. God is most merciful. When we think about the quality of the merciful, merciful person, I think we quickly recognize how mercy is very much un, it's an ennobling quality. It really sparkles in someone. When uh, you see a person that is very merciful, when, when the high comes low to care for the least of these, that's such a beautiful quality. We see someone that, that um, concerned about great things, yet stooping so low to really just care for others. It's just such a sparkling quality. It's, it's an ennobling quality. And God is so merciful as he comes to pick up the lowly. Um, as Psalm 113 says, he loves to pick up the lowly from the dust and seat them in high places. And when we're, when we're considering God's merciful perspective towards the world, mercy is the quality of God whereby he looks at humanity as a people who are to be pitied, a people who are pitiable. Um, there's different perspectives with which we can look at the human predicament, but the perspective of mercy sees us primarily as sufferers, as people who are enslaved to sin and Satan and have actually been made victims of it, where God looks and says, see how these people have made a mess of themselves. See how these people have ruined themselves and are just stuck in the mire, sinking. And God's heart then of compassion God's heart of mercy reaches out to us as sufferers, people who have been really brought low due to sin. And God pities us partly because he sees his own, his own image is in us, right? The, the heart of empathy and compassion is to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, is to be able to understand how would I be feeling in that situation, that, that likeness, that camaraderie, provokes empathy. Um, psychologists have studied and, so, and show that uh, we seem to care most about the animals that look most like us, right? So, so the, be like the more human the eyes, we think we see ourselves more quickly in a creature like that and feel more compassion for it. But God's own image and likeness is in us. And above all, in Jesus, Hebrews 4 says, he sympathizes with our weakness and suffering because he himself suffered, being tempted in the ways we're tempted, knowing hunger and thirst and crying. Jesus, it says in the days of his flesh, cried out in pain and suffering to God. And therefore, it says Jesus is a merciful high priest one who's experienced the weakness and struggles of our human nature. He has a heart of compassion towards us. 
uh, we see just God's mercy so brilliantly shown in Christ, who is that greater good Samaritan, who while we were lying bruised and bloody on the side of the road, he picks us up. He pays for our healing. He gives us that wine and oil and, and um, owns himself for our recovery. He's so compassionate. And by way of application, we are called, as Matthew writes, to be merciful as our heavenly father is merciful. And if we're to be merciful people like God, we need to cultivate compassion and empathy. These are not things that you're just born with. And even if you feel naturally like you're not an empathetic person, you can grow in this quality by virtue of just training your mind to think this way. When you hear about someone in the church who's suffering with an illness or an issue in their family, to just take time to think, how would I feel if I was walking through that? And that, that starts to help us cultivate hearts of empathy. Um, even reading, reading good biographies, good ways to just bring our minds into other people's ways of thinking. Um, that's even one reason why a good literary novels can be helpful, because they help us think from someone else's perspective and grow a heart of empathy. And so to do that, we need to be recognizing again and again our common humanity with all other image bearers of God, especially suffering people. And the more we recognize our similarity in our humanity, the more we'll be enabled to be merciful as God is merciful. Because the main way, or maybe perhaps one of the main ways God shows his mercy in this world is through us, who he's called to be ministers of mercy. And God really, he set up the whole Old Testament society, their civil political realm, with mercy baked in. God had civil policies in Israel that provided for the poor and for the widow and for the stranger. You think of those gleaning laws where people were not to reap every cent out of their vineyard, but had to leave extras that the poor would be able to come and receive. And it actually says these gleanings belong to the poor because God is merciful and he baked it into the law. And repeatedly and repeatedly in the Old Testament, there's four groups that particularly suffer in this world that are repeated again and again. And if you're looking for it, you'll see this constantly, how the Old Testament refers to God's particular heart for the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and the immigrant, or sometimes said the stranger. These particularly vulnerable groups that God has a particular concern for, and we need to have a particular concern for as well. The poor, the widow, the fatherless or orphan, and the immigrant. People that struggle and we want to show mercy. As James says, it's, this is true religion, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. But we learn mercy from God who has shown us infinite mercy. God is so, so merciful. But more than that, God is gracious. And mercy and grace go together as different perspectives by which to look at the human race. So if God's mercy considers us as pitiable sufferers, God's grace considers us as guilty sinners, as offenders against God's law. Uh, You could describe mercy as God's goodness being exercised towards those who are pitiable, but God's grace is his goodness exercised towards those who are undeserving. So grace sees us as guilty. 
So if mercy looks at us as enslaved prisoners, grace sees us as guilty offenders, justly deserving God's punishment. And so that gracious favor of God, it reaches out in Christ to not only rescue us from our suffering, but to bring us forgiveness and deliverance from our own sin, to pay that penalty of the law that we would have justly been punished for, and to not only forgive us, but even adopt us into his own family. Such incredible grace. Uh, as Louis, Louis Burkhoff says, the grace of God is the source of all spiritual blessings that are bestowed upon sinners. Everything we have is of grace. And God's grace is manifest to us particularly in the fact that he gives it freely as an act of the will. And it's not that we were somehow able to flag God down um, like a in the Good Samaritan, if the guy was on the side of the road and we're waving and we're like, oh good, you saw me because I waved you down to get some help. God's will just exercises freely, chooses to show grace. There was nothing in us that would induce him to show us grace, nothing worthy enough in us to obligate God into our debt to help us at all. But he does it freely of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth, James 1.17 says. And so an application for us is that grace is really the ultimate humbling force. If, as C.S. Lewis argued, that pride is the greatest sin and humility a great virtue, continual um, meditation on grace will keep us abundantly humble. And we need to recognize, I think something we often miss is not only, I think sometimes we're good at understanding that all our salvation is of grace, that as sinners, we didn't deserve anything to be given spiritual saving benefits, but we often forget that everything we have and are is a gift of grace. Paul, Paul said, um, all that you've received is a gift, and if everything you have is a gift, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? And I think sometimes when we think of our, say, earthly accomplishments, maybe you've been successful in school, or um, you feel good about, say, picking, picking a good spouse, or picking a good career to go into, or uh, being a good parent, all these things, if you think you get the credit for that, you don't understand that even that is grace. The family you were born into, the society you were born into, the, the wealth you were born into, the skills you were born with, the natural capabilities in your mind or dispositions, your upbringing, you don't get credit for any of that. And so to boast and to look down on other people who have been not as successful as we are or whose lives are a lot more messy and falling apart than ours and to attribute that difference to anything other than God being gracious to us is a heart of pride that really thinks that we get the credit for being hard workers because that's something of me. But even your work ethic, even your financial management and stewardship that, those are gracious gifts of God that he's allowed you to cultivate, worked in you, and um, that has to be attributed to God's grace as well. And we pursue moral good and we pursue responsibility, but we can never take the credit for it to think of ourselves as better than other people. As soon as we start thinking of ourselves as better in and of ourselves, we're in a really bad place. It's God that has shown us wonderful grace and to him be glory. And if we've been shown such grace, how could we not then want to reach up to lift up those who have been less fortunate to, to those who were not born into circumstances such as ours? We really want to be people not only who reflect God's mercy, but reflect his grace. Sometimes people don't deserve 
help. But to be like God and show grace, even when people have made a mess of their own lives, they've made bad choices, yet to be like God and show grace is just a wonderful quality that that I think would free us from a lot of our entrappings of self. Grace is the best humbler. God is gracious. Furthermore, God is long-suffering, Exodus 34 says. That is, he is patient, or he is slow to anger. That is, God bears a long time with us. And we know that our impatience very quickly leads to frustration. Um, It would be interesting to do a test if you could study people, say, how long will they keep trying a ballpoint pen that's not putting out any ink and keep rubbing it on the page until you just throw it away? Um, My my dad had a very low tolerance. A couple swipes of the pen, trash the pen. Um, Other people in my family would keep working it until the ink finally came. But sometimes it never comes and they throw it away. But that's to say that we often give up on things before the right time. God doesn't give up on anyone He is patient through and through. He he never gets trapped by an impatience that causes him to quit at an inappropriate time. Um, His impatience carries him through to perfect judgment. And often in impatience, we cut short important processes. Um, Some of you might be able to think of times where, say, Um, I wish I had learned that skill as a kid, but my parent wasn't patient enough with me to really help me learn it. Um, Often parents will say things like, well, I would get my kids to come and help learn how to do the laundry or cook, but they just slow it down and it's frustrating. And yeah, it would be good if they learned, but I don't have enough patience to actually teach them. God has full patience with us to teach us and train us in the Christ likeness that he has for us. Again, 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient towards you, not delaying his coming, but because he's not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so a wonderful application here is just to marvel at God's patience now that he's waiting for people to come to repentance. Although this earth would deserve to be deluged again like in Noah's day and all destroyed immediately, God is letting the seed of the gospel, the leaven of the gospel, work through the whole lump. He's giving time for that mustard seed to grow into the largest tree that more and more tribes and tongues and cultures and men and women would come to know God as their father. And he's so patient. And because God's patient, he bears with us and he has patience to continually discipline us and disciple us and train us in his ways. And so God can handle the fact that you keep falling into the same sins. God can handle the fact that even though you keep asking for grace and trying and tripping, he's not going to give up on you. Sometimes even when we give up on ourselves, God remains patient with us. He never will cast off his children. Sometimes you you might know your own kids. They're trying something and it's frustrating. They keep failing and they want to give up. And you say, no, no, if you keep trying, eventually you'll get it. And you being patient with them can help them overcome even their own sense of worthlessness. And God is like that with us, that even when we've given up uh, that I'll never be able to overcome this besetting sin, I'll never be able to be the type of Christian I want to be, yet we need to not give up because God hasn't given up on us. Even when we are feeling faithless, 
Timothy, or Paul writes to Timothy that God remains faithful. He can't deny himself. God's patience is so wonderful. Um, and lastly, the last two are that God is abundant in goodness and truth. I think we'll get through one of these. We'll see. Um, God is abundant in goodness. In that passage where God is going to reveal his name to Moses, he says, first of all, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. So God's goodness is the source of this name. Out of God's goodness comes his grace, his grace and mercy and patience and justice. And the goodness of God is the most supremely delightful and satisfying of all his attributes. When God's goodness is talked about, it's often talked about as the source of our satisfaction, the source of our delight and the source of our joy. And really, any good thing you experience in this world is just an echo of the goodness of God. Any enjoyment, any delight you ever experience, whether it's with company or with good food or fun experiences, those are all just echoes of the goodness of God, things flowing from him. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is the ideal of what the concept of God entails. Um, Burkhoff says that when we speak of something as good, that's when it answers in all parts to its ideal. So if you say, uh, this is a good painting, it's an ideal type of painting. This is a good dog. This is the way a dog should be. This is an ideal baby. It's behaving the way we wish all babies would be. And God as good means uh, we can't conceive of anything better, anything more perfect than God. And Goodness is what we're all after. Goodness was the fundamental characteristic of creation. Sin corrupted it, but one day goodness is going to be fully restored. And the new heavens and the new earth will be nothing but goodness. Oh, abundant, flowing goodness. And so we uh, get to look forward to that. And let's never lose sight that God's fundamental characteristic to us is that he is good. Again and again and again in the Psalms, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And churches go really backwards when the fundamental characteristic of God becomes something like badness or wrath or evil before it is fundamentally goodness. Goodness is the fundamental, the first thing we should think of when we think of God is that He's good. All goodness is from him. Praise the Lord. He's abundant in goodness and truth. Psalm 117.2 says, For his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. We can think of truth in two ways. Truth is correspondence. We can think of truth as correspondence from word to reality. So when I say two plus two is four, what I'm saying corresponds to the laws of logic. But truth is also considered in the correspondence of our actions to our, our deeds. So if I am a true friend, then what I've, what I've said I am as a friend, I'm carrying out. A true spouse is someone who is keeping their vows by their actions. Their actions correspond to their words. And God is true to us both in word and action. So everything God has spoken, everything he's said in his word, corresponds to the way things actually are. What God says about the nature of man, the nature of heaven, salvation, the nature of ethics, those things correspond to the actual way the world is. That's why Christianity makes the best sense of the world, because it accords with our actual experience. So all God's laws are perfectly true, 
But secondly, God is perfectly true in his uh, faithfulness. Truth and faithfulness go hand in hand, which is to say that God perfectly keeps all his promises. Everything he said he will do, he has done. He's faithful to us and perfectly trustworthy. And so by way of application here, when you're discouraged, when you're struggling, when you're in a time of suffering in life, it's time to go hunting for those promises of God, to go treasure collecting in the word, like looking for shells on the beach, to gather up all those promises of what God has said he will do, what he said he is to his people, believing that as the true and faithful God, he will keep those. And so we encourage our hearts with those promises like, I'm preparing a place for you, or I will never leave you nor forsake you, or that promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, or Christ's promise, come to me and I will give you rest, or that none who wait on the Lord will be put to shame, or no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Because God is faithful, he will never fail to meet any one of his promises to us. And because his promise to us in the gospel through Christ is true, we can pray to him and worship him and trust that he's preserving us until that final day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have so much in store for us, and we've only scratched the surface of who you are and what it means for us in our lives We ask that even as we come to worship this morning, that thoughts of you would be high in our minds, that your beauty and splendor and majesty, your love, grace, mercy, and especially your goodness would be abundant to us and that in response we would have thankful and humble hearts. Lord, we ask your help that we would focus on you, that you would help us by your spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ, for his glory, as we pray in his name. Amen.